Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. And I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And today we sit down with author Nick Taylor. T.T. Monday is the pseudonym of novelist Nick Taylor, author of The Disagreement, 2008, and Father Junipero's Confessor, 2013, both historical novels. Double Switch, 2016, is the second mystery novel to feature Johnny Adcock following The Setup Man from 2014. He lives in California with his family. That would be Nick and Johnny, actually, but Johnny doesn't have a family. <laughs> you can find more information about Nick at www.ttmonday.com. And also, you can find him on Twitter at, at TTMonday. I wanted to mention that I kept saying for the last few podcasts, come find me at AWP. Well, it was my first AWP conference, and it was fantastic and amazing. And I have lots of guests who will be coming to us from that those uh, panels and things. But there were 12,000 people there. It was in the most enormous conference center, plus another hotel, plus a million outside events. I mean, there's just no way you found me who was having a cold and wandering around downtown Los Angeles. So um, hope to see you next year and I'll be more specific or I'll like wear orange with polka dots or something. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Otherwise just f- keep finding us here on iTunes or Stitcher or on the website. And if you would, could you go and rate it, rate us, rate the podcast, let and people know. For people who have chosen to go ahead and rate us, we have a special prize, which is that we will give you a free podcast following that. So in the meantime, enjoy the show. Let's just start a little bit with the history of how you went from doing historical fiction under one identity. I mean, this isn't a secret, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> and then moved into into the mystery genre. Sure. Um, well, I started, I, you know, I went to MFA school where they don't really teach historical fiction or mystery genre. Yeah. What do they teach? <laughs> <laughs> well, they aspire to teach character-driven, realistic, contemporary fiction. Yeah. Most MFA programs, um, at least the one I went to, did. And uh, I wrote some historical fiction uh, over a summer while I was in graduate school. I had a, I had a grant, like a historical research grant, Ooh. that they normally give to architects and uh, <laughs> art historians and stuff. But I, you know, I needed some money for daycare. <laughs> so, I, so I applied to write some historical fiction and... Um, they went for it. So I wrote, I pulled up in the archives and I wrote a bunch of short stories about the history of this university. And now just um, to say, were you already going to write historical fiction or was it really because of the parameters of the grant? It was because of the parameters of the grant. I love it. (laughs) Um, you know, I was, I, I, I went into grad school promising myself to be open to anything. Mm -hmm. Good attitude. Stretching myself in any way, um, that presented itself to me, and, and historical fiction was never something that I thought to write. Although I wrote, uh, although I read a lot of it, you know, and even before graduate school, um, even historical fiction about Virginia was interesting and influential to me. Like the Confessions of Nat Turner by William Styron is one of my favorites, and um, and so when I started investigating the history of this university, I, I tapped into that vein and um, found that I had a lot more material than 
uh, on one story in particular than I could fit into a short story, so I just kept going. So that's how I came into historical fiction. And um, and then my second book is about, about Father Sarah and the California missionaries. And I approached that basically the same way, with the same process. Wait, you got a grant? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I didn't get a grant that time. Yeah. <laughs> research process, you know, yeah. material, looking for stories, interesting characters. I mean, my my process in historical fiction is a lot about finding these spaces in between the facts mm-hmm. where where we can speculate. And um, it, I think that's a good approach for a number of reasons. One, that you can't be disproven by... <laughs> By some uh, stickler, uh-huh. and, uh, that you're unlikely to cover territory that people have already covered or that they already know, um, and uh, so there's a few consequences of, of following that approach. One is that the better subjects when you're using that approach are the ones about which there's less known. Mm-hmm. The, with the California missionaries, it was much better than the Civil War because we, we don't actually have that much of a record. You know, Father Sarah himself wasn't, he didn't keep a diary. Um, he wrote a lot of letters, but most of them are full of um, prayers and, and <laughs> exhortations to various saints. I mean, really, they are. And, um, and so I found this character who was his second-in-command uh, and had been his... I guess you'd say like chief graduate student at the mm-hmm. at the the um, theological college where he taught in my in Majorca, and um, this guy was always being left behind at the last place Father Sarah was, yeah. and um, continuing on his work. And uh, there was a great love between them, but not a romantic love, more more like a mentor mentee relationship, which was something that I was really interested in mm-hmm. writing about. And um, so that so I decided to make that guy my my narrator. He also happened to be the first published writer in California. He wrote a biography of Sarah, the official biography. Mm. It was the first book written in California that was published. Mm. And it, he he wrote it as a recruiting tool, mm-hmm. Franciscans, because they they weren't getting enough uh, young men to come over from Spain to you know, fill all the missions and stuff. And so he thought that if he told the story of this saint-like man, this little man who yeah. tamed the wilderness. Who was um, apparently very small. He was tiny. He yeah. Was maybe, five, maybe five feet. Yeah, I mean, just that moment when um, Paco has gone to go get Juan Crespi's yeah. uh, sermon and... There's a scene where, you know, Juan has taken away the little step stool that, that yeah, Sarah yeah. was on. And now he's like, well, you can't see it because this is going to be audio. But I just could picture him just like kind of like, you know, these Franciscan eyes peeping <laughs> over, you know, a little podium thing and speaking to this, you know. And he's a terrifying character at that point. Yeah. 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 Well, I actually visited the church. Mm-hmm. That church where that sermon uh, contest would have happened at the the Franciscan uh, friary in, in Majorca, in, in Palma. And there was this, there's this pulpit up on the side of the church where, where I'm sure Sarah would have positioned himself because it's lifted, you know, 20 feet off the floor <laughs> to begin with, you know, and I'm sure that's where he would have been. But um, Juan Crespi was apparently 
over six feet tall and mm-hmm. and large, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. stocky. So the, I'm sure that side by side they must have looked, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, it maybe like um, like did you see Midnight Cowboy? You know, with mm-hmm. the, yes, like those two, Hoffman mm-hmm. and John Boyd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. All right. So clearly, you're passionate now about historical fiction. What what grant pulled you to mystery? Oh, there was no grant. It was, <laughs> you know, to be honest, what pulled me to mystery was um, trying to connect with more readers mm-hmm. and um, wanting to attempt something more commercial. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an idea to write a kind of existential detective novel <laughs> i'm not sure that it ended up being an existentialism. existentialism is like the cornerstone of popular fiction <laughs> yeah you're like bigger audience let's go existentialist well I, maybe existential is not the right word i mean something that's like got some some mood and, and mm. atmosphere and flavor but the detective is also conscious if mm. you know what i mean he's not just an operator in a first-person video game, you know, I mean, he's, he's aware of his surroundings and the the bizarre circumstances in which he finds himself. And so, uh, I was living in India at the time when I started writing this baseball book and, um, in the way of a lot of expats sort of thinking fondly about American things that I like. And one of them was baseball. And I thought, Hey, what, 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 how about I try this? You know, Mm -hmm. like I'll just write a few pages and see what if it sticks, you know, and I, I think I wrote for like six hours and had like 20 pages or something at the end of it. And I thought, okay, I got something, you know, Mm -hmm. like this voice is worth, um, pursuing at least. Although I, at that point I didn't know what would come from it, a short story or a novel or what, but, um, it was a lot of fun to write. And that's, I think what got me into it. But I got to say the process of plotting a detective novel is not something that comes naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I, I still struggle with. And that's, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know what to liken it to because they're really, it, it is so different from the process of, of developing a literary novel. Mm-hmm. It's not just follow the character mm-hmm. and and the way their character develops. You know, I mean, in, a, in essence, you have to have two plots. And one of them you have to know from the beginning, which is the crime, you know, that happened. And, and it generally happened, for the most part, before the novel began. And then the second plot is the detective figuring out what that first plot was. And I, it wasn't apparent to me when I started the first Johnny Adcock book, The Setup Man, that I that it worked that way. Because mm-hmm. I, I just had that little experience um, working with detective fiction. And as a as a um, as a reader of detective fiction, of course you don't think about it uh, right. in terms of the way it's put together. You just enjoy it. You enjoy the suspense. And um, and so I just went through the plot from the perspective of the detective, not knowing myself what had actually happened. Which is great because you can't give away the secret. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know it, right? But, um, but I ended up spinning my tires a lot and throwing away a lot of pages. Mm-hmm. Even with the second book, where I, where I kind of went into it a little half cocked, um, I I recovered, I think, 
and mm. managed to um, reshape the plot after the fact, like in a second draft. Mm-hmm. And I'm really pleased with the way it turned out, but um, I wish that I had done more groundwork before I had started writing, which is, which right. is you know, not at all how I approach um, literary fiction. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's interesting because I think that when you have certain expectations going into a genre like mystery, like there, it is much more, I think, um, people have expect, I, I, expectations is the word I want to use just because, you know, um, people want to be surprised and yet have that sense of inevitability. They want to be able to look back on what they've read and say, ah, yes. I mean, there's that constant kind of tension with the reader. Can I figure it out? Can I figure it out? And you're, and you're playing with that kind of attention, um, where I think it's interesting comparing it to literary fiction because sometimes it's just with that, you want to see what's going to happen or how is this person going to react in this, this context in a different way. And I think like, I would be interested to hear about like your planning process, if any, and you were just saying that you kind of went half cocked, but, um, if you were to compare your planning processes at this point, knowing what you know now, what, what would you think? about your approach my approach for literary fiction versus genre fiction yeah yeah um well to some extent with historical fiction you have to do groundwork you know you have to know your period you have to know the facts of what actually happened um and i remember when i was writing my first novel the disagreement about a medical student during the civil war I kept a page up on my computer, a, a web page that was like the quick and dirty timeline of the Civil War. You know, here's when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation on this day. Here's when the Battle of Gettysburg happened on this day. Here's when you know right, right. X, Y, and Z happened. That these are the things that would have been like in the news for my characters at that time. I had to know that, and I could not get that wrong. You know, because the book would not be taken seriously in that case. So to some extent, I was uh, required to respect a form, even in a, even in a genre, literary fiction, which has no established form. Because if I didn't, you know, the form being the, the facts of what happened in the Civil War, if I didn't, then the illusion of... Um, the fictional illusion would be lost and I'd lose the reader. The same is true with a detective story, except it's, it's a form dictated not by the material, but by tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and the readers expect something very particular with, uh, for example, a private eye novel, which is, I mean, my, my uh, protagonist, Johnny Adcock, isn't much of a private eye. <laughs> More of a fixer, really, but... But even even there, I mean, you know, the classic setup is detective sitting in his office, woman walks in, right? Right. And she, and she has a problem that he need that she wants his help with, but she's not giving him the whole the whole truth. You know, there's a lot more to it than she's letting on. And as he begins to investigate, he realizes that she wasn't entirely honest with him. And that she may actually be involved in ways that were not apparent when she walked in. So that needs to happen. That that scene 
or some version of that scene needs to happen in the first few pages of the book. And if you don't have that there, you will lose the readers for that genre. Mm. Um, so in both cases, historical fiction, in this case based in the Civil War, and detective fiction, the reader's expectations dictate your, uh, your outcome and uh, also your process to some extent. Because that's the whole reason you have those readers, you know. <laughs> and if and if you know, and if you want to keep them, you have to behave. You know, I often think about genre as like a, it, you know, if literature is a playground, then genre is each of the slides, you know, that come mm -hmm. off the the equipment. And there's readers waiting at the bottom of all those slides, you know. And some of the slides have a lot of readers at the bottom and some have just a few readers, but like they're all waiting for the same, they're all waiting for a particular kid to come down the slide. Yeah. <laughs> and and if, if you send the wrong kid down that slide, they're going to be pissed off yeah. and they're going to go to another slide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who the hell are you, kid? They're going to want to know where their kid is at. Right. Yeah. But is there a pleasure in that constraint? Is there a creative even force or energy that gets created by it? There totally is. Great. I mean, that's a, that's a great observation, and I think it's true. Just, a, just as there's um, creativity that comes out of a poet working with a particular form, you know? Mm -hmm. The same is true with a fiction writer. For example, my, uh, my detective is a baseball relief pitcher. He doesn't have an office, you know? But in the second book, I have him in the first scene, very first page even, sitting in the bullpen after a game. And, you know, I tip my, I guess I tip my hand a little bit because I have him say, it's the closest thing I have to an office, you know, hit, hit, this is what you're getting. And then, the, and then this field reporter walks in, this female field reporter and who ends up becoming his client. Who is not what she seems. Who is not at all what she seems. And so had I not been aware of that, that tradition you know, with, with detective novels, I would not have come up with the scene, you know. And, and I love that. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but I love being forced to work with some kind of arbitrary constraint, you yes. know, not, not to the point of like George Perec and trying to write a whole book without the letter E or something, but <laughs> different but, kind of constraint. Right. No, I, we're big believers in the, the benefits of constraint for creativity. If you, if the field's too wide, it just can make it way harder than it needs to be yeah, like to be the, creative. The worst assignment you can give a class is write anything you like. <laughs> and also, you know, so, somebody, and I can't remember who, said, don't follow your character, follow the story. And it, and when you were talking about kind of literary fiction just following the character, I was thinking about that. I think that's one of the mistakes that literary fiction makes is or can make is following the character. I think it gives the feeling of following the character, but actually in a well-shaped even in a well-shaped literary book, it's actually following a story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some well, story. I mean, I, you know, if the character is realistically rendered, there's a million different ways they could go. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I, when I was younger and people would ask me the question, you know, do you follow your characters? Do you just listen to what the character said? I would like turn, turn the question around on person and say, that's bullshit. You know, we, I'm in charge here. We, we're all writers. It's an illusion that we follow characters. And I mean, which kind of misses the point because we're just using that as a handy way to think about um, conflict, 
you know, mm-hmm. plot craft, if you, mm-hmm. or, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, at a minimum, we need to take our characters and get them in some sort of danger, you know, yeah. psychological, emotional, in the case of literary fiction, or physical peril, in the case of a lot of genre fiction. Mm-hmm. Ideally, both, you know. Yeah. And um, what do you mean by story versus? Versus character. Versus character. Well, I think, I mean, what, kind of what happens next, or the causality, the build, the what, you know, what's cause and effect, consequence. Um, you know, I, I remember hearing A.S. Byatt, somebody asked her in a, in a Q&A, you know, I have so much trouble getting my characters out of the room. And she said, you know, just leave them in the middle of the room. <laughs> just leave them there. So I think it's, you know, that we can sort of end up like literally like they are brushing their teeth and now they're driving to work. And while they're driving to work, they're thinking a lot of things and we go into their thoughts. And, you know, whereas you can really zero in on even in literary fiction, you know, what are what are the scenes that matter that show something that change? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. it's sort of thinking of yourself as the editor of that character's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also, I mean, think about dramatic irony and how you're able to establish dramatic irony when the character doesn't have that information. So there has to be a moment at which the character doesn't get the information when the when the reader does. The reader does. Well, so. that was something I wanted to ask you about because my understanding, again, someone that famous someone said um, that you know, actually, anyway, there's a book called How to Write Killer Fiction. I think she says it at least one person, which is that in a mystery. The reader is one step behind the detective. So we're waiting to figure out what he's figured out. And I think that certainly happens here. You know, he says at one point, you know, it's all working out the way I'd hoped it would. And we're like, okay, what? What's happening? What's, you know, um, whereas in a thriller, the reader's maybe a step ahead of the person being afraid of what what the uh, they're about to encounter, the character's about to encounter. Yeah, I mean, I... I a guy once told me the difference between uh, a mystery and a thriller. Well, I mean, glibly, he said, the difference is like four or five zeros on the end of your paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> but then but then he offered another explanation, which is that in a mystery, you're reading to find out who did it. Mm-hmm. And in a thriller, you're reading... In a thriller, you know who did it. And the question is, can they be stopped in time? Mm-hmm. Before they take over everything. <laughs> and I guess that's right. I mean, I'm much more interested in the former, I think, than the latter. Mm. Because it's more personal to me. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I really like about detective fiction is I feel like they're really vo- – detective novels are often voicey in the most interesting ways. Mm. You know, I don't know if you've ever read – the Travis McGee novels by John D. McDonald. He was this guy who was huge in this, I guess, 70s and 80s. And he, he, he was a Florida writer. And this guy, this guy, Travis McGee, lives on a houseboat in Tampa, I think. And he's a fixer or a finder. I think he finds lost things or something. I forget what his business card says. But, you know, he's always being dragged out of retirement for just one more case. And right. it's always something totally bizarre. It was sort of Carl Hyacin before Carl Hyacin. Right. Kind of bizarre Florida freakishness. and um, But the voice is what makes it so wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, a, a detective in a good detective novel can be just basically a voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's a first person um, point of view, but, um, 
Whereas I don't see that really happening in a thriller. It's almost like the protagonist of the thriller is is really secretly always the bad guy, maybe. What? <laughs> well, because the, it's really the, the 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 good guy is running from the bad guy, but the bad guy is sort of driving it. I mean, mm. uh, maybe it's a theory. I don't really know. <laughs> well, they say that they say that we're living in an era where um, the anti-hero is is primary. You know, mm. like most most popular movies these days. Or not most, but a lot of popular thrillers deal with antiheroes. I mean, people like Batman, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not purely good, right. uh, and and we love that for some reason. You know, we I, maybe we've gotten bored of people of, of clean cut heroes like Superman, and and you know we're more we we want a little bit more edge. Feels like this could segue well, into discussion about presidential candidates, but we well, won't actually. Go there. I was like, well, or the upcoming Superman versus Batman movie coming out, uh, and, right. and <laughs> yeah. what those archetypes are all about. Yeah. So, how do you juggle family, teaching, writing in different genres? How do, what's your writing schedule like? Uh, well, I teach at a university at San Jose State, and. You know, one of the benefits of teaching at a university is that it's a kind of seasonal <laughs> work. I mean, it can it, it can get really super intense for a few months, and then it just stops. You know, mm-hmm. for, for a few months, and then it gets super, super, super intense, and then it stops. So, realistically, what ends up happening with my writing is that I write a whole lot when it stops during the breaks. You know, and and during the other times. I can perform other sorts of tasks meaningful to my career, like promotion and readings and even editing, reading proofs, things like that. But it's difficult for me to string together a number of days where I'm working on the same project every day, because, mm-hmm. except during a school break. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately, with my job, there's, there's some, some nice long school breaks during the year. Um, then do you plunge in and write a ton during those breaks? I mean... I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, the kids will still go to school and still go to daycare, just like it's not a school break. You know? okay. My wife still goes to work, and, um, and, I, and so do I. You know, I just sit down right there at, the de- at my desk and just, like, plow until it's time to get the kids. Hmm. And, and I, I think that the juggling makes me – it requires me to be a lot more efficient with my time. Yes. And you guys know that. <laughs> and um, it's been that way for me ever since graduate school. Like my daughter was – my elder daughter, who's 13 now, was born I think six months before I started graduate school. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I was the only – one of only I think two students in the program with a child. And me and this other guy were always talking about how it was kind of our secret weapon because – Everybody else would just kind of drink away their time, and and we would make an hour the the most productive hour, you know. Yeah. And um, and at little did I know that was great training for life after grad school. Yeah. Because there's you know you got to support yourself some way. There's always something someone else competing for your time, and um, you have to learn that discipline of what my wife calls paying yourself first. <laughs> You know, it's like the opposite of running a small business. You know, when you run a small business, you pay your employees first, and then if there's any money money left over, you pay yourself. You know, but when you're a writer, and your currency is your time, you know, you have to get your own work done um, 
you know, sorry students, but like <laughs> the the uh, the stack of papers may have to be a, a day late. <laughs> yeah, it's like I got, I got a deadline, or I need to get this chapter done, or something. So, um, I, I mean, I make it sound like I've got it all figured out, but I really don't. I mean, it's a struggle every time I have conflicts for my time, and um, and yet I know that everything that I enjoy about my working life comes from writing. Mm-hmm. If I if I ever neglect that for too long, I'm unhappy. And mm-hmm. so I it's just right for so many reasons for me yeah. to 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 get the writing done before I do something else. I find it interesting we keep using the word writing as though it's a single activity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, do you do, uh, since we talked about the expectations of genre and of historical fiction, historical fiction, it's a little bit clearer, like, okay, this happens, this happens. Do you do any pre-planning before you sit down to write? And, um, or do you, yeah, just that kind of thing. Since we're talking about, you have a fragment, you have that hour, you have to make it work. No, I, I, it's a great point, Angie, like, um, Writing is not just like a blank page and you're filling it up with fresh thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the pre-writing process, particularly with the stuff I've been doing for, for the Johnny Adcock books as TT Monday, um, is crucial. I mean, just for the last like for the last six weeks, I've been wrangling with this plot outline that I mm-hmm. want to propose to my um, publisher, and it's excruciating to. I mean, it's like condensing a plot that's going to be 200 or 300 pages long into like 15 pages told in in the wrong point of view like mm-hmm. it's it's third person i'm i'm it's like i'm summarizing a plot for for tv guide you know it's right. like it's like that it's not quite that level of compression but you know similar point of view and um so much of it is happens off the page. Mm-hmm. So much of the work happens off the page, like fitting together. This person knew this on this day. So how could they have possibly been in this other place on that day? Mm-hmm. And this is the part that's really hard for me. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of, a lot of mystery writers come to writing secondarily because primarily they were a spy or, <laughs> or, a or something like that. And in some ways they're in an advantage because their brain is trained to work that way. Mine is not like the other, the writing of it. That's the easy part for me, like rendering the characters and the scenes and the settings and the dialogue. And everything. I got that part down, you know, like I've been doing that for years. It's the whole, you know, like accounting of, of, uh, the crime and, and yeah, it's difficult. So, so yeah, that, so there's that part, and then there's the actual, what we call the actual writing, I guess, the drafting. Mm. And I know a lot of writers who love that part most, and they feel like that's, that's true writing, you know? Mm-hmm. But for me, I tend to do a lot of drafts of, of my work, and so a fresh draft um, is just as much writing as, as a, you know, a, a fresh rewrite, I guess is what I mean to say. Um, is just as important as the, the first draft, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've thrown away whole drafts before, so I don't really consider that a separate process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I heard Lauren Groff say that she does that deliberately. She'll write a draft just to figure out the story and then throw it away and start over yeah. again. 
Did you ever see that that documentary about Wilco, the rock band? Called, oh no! Called "I Am Trying to Break Your Heart." I don't know if you like Wilco, but mm -hmm. you love this documentary just as an object lesson in a, a few things. One of which is organizational behavior, <laughs> the organization of a rock band. Um, but apparently, their process with the album that they're making during that documentary is that they recorded all the songs and then they tossed them. They tossed those recordings out. And tried to re-record them uh, with different instruments and stuff. And I, I forget exactly how they right. did it, but it's the same idea, you know. It's like, and the way that they were doing that, the the reason that they were doing that is that they wanted to throw out the path of least resistance for each of these songs because that had been done. And I don't know if that's what Lauren Groff is getting at, but I I see that as a valid process if you have the time, because because. Probably the first way you think of telling a story is too indebted to other things you've read or uh, subconsciously, I mean. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. especially guilty of this. Um, <laughs> several times I've had story ideas and even written up treatments or something and then told my wife and she said, you realize that's a Rodney Dangerfield movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anything that I can do to avoid that, I'm happy to do. Yeah. Well, and this is another part of one of our tools, right? Is like sharing the the outline with your wife, or you yeah. know, do you do you do that? How how does she like your um, your womanizing uh, lead character? She doesn't focus on that too much. I mean, she she tends to focus more on like the strong female characters in the in the book. You know, uh -huh. the sort of ass kicking females um, she likes. Uh huh. Uh, and the womanizing, I think, part of the job, huh? Part of the job. Part of the job. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, most people who read it think, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be honest with myself, what would being a professional athlete be about? You know, mm -hmm. these are these sort. Of, and and I, I talk about this in the books too. This is one of the most interesting parts of exploring this guy's psychology. Is he's aware in, way, in a way that a lot of professional athletes are not because he's sort of introspective and he's, he recognizes that there are these hyper-masculinized, um, incredibly rich and powerful grown-up boys, you know, mm. who, who are sort of turned loose on America. And I mean, that has disastrous consequences as, as, as we've seen in the NFL recently, um, but it can also, you know, make for good uh, detective fiction. <laughs> but the womanizing, I mean, you know, uh, I had a, I had someone at a reading recently accuse me of just writing my fantasies. <laughs> and I mean, I couldn't deny it completely. I mean, I'd like to think I have a little bit more intention than that, but but that's certainly part of it. I mean, part of it is just I'm imagining what would it be like to be a professional baseball player, um, and this is what I think it would be like. Well, you know, one of the things they talk about that, you know, they again, whoever they are with a capital T, um, in character development, like when we talk about screenplays and stuff, a lot of times you want to see them kind of take on things that the average person doesn't really get to do. Yeah. And there is an aspect of wish fulfillment that goes through, even an imperfect narrator, an imperfect character, there's things that they do on a level that the average reader probably wouldn't get to. Yeah. And well, so I'm yeah. going to give you that argument. 
Well, I'm a strong believer that fiction shouldn't exactly recreate life mm -hmm. because why would we read it? <laughs> you know, like we're, we're reading it to go into another space that usually makes more sense than life because life, I don't know if you've noticed, but <laughs> you know, B doesn't always follow logically from A in life, but in fiction it does. Mm -hmm. you know? Going back to what we were talking about, uh, about editing characters' lives, we edit out the part that is random or that's mm. noisy. Or boring. Or boring. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, and so I think that w that has a lot to do with wish fulfillment, too. I don't want to read about some guy who's exactly like me, frustrated in all the same ways that I am, mm -hmm. bored in all the same ways that I am, trapped in all the way the sa same ways that I am. I would, you know, I, I, I think this is part of what people mean when they say they read to escape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really fun. And I think, you know, I always think books teach us how to read them. And, and like, I'm not maybe the the biggest baseball fan in the world. But by the end, I felt really gripped with the choices he was making, you know, and, and how that was playing out. I just it really built up for me. So it was, you know, it was fun, really fun. Well, I'm glad you liked it. So our last segment is called Steal This, and oh. we look at things we've wandered, come across lately that we want to take and make our own. T.S. Eliot said amateur poets borrow and professional poets steal. Anything that you've come across, Nick, that you would like to to take on and make your own? Uh, well, I, I'm a big fan of sentient animals in, mm. in fiction. Uh, my very first published story was called The Smell of Despair. It was a story, a story, a story about um, some revolutionary llamas in Peru. Excellent. Who, who band together and rise up against the government, kind of for indigenous rights. Yeah. And, um, That's Yama. Yeah, exactly. Yama. Just to say. They, no, they corrected the... Corrected. <laughs> um, in Spanish, I say it correctly. Yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, I heard recently, um, I haven't read this yet, but I put it on my list, a book by Elizabeth Mackenzie called The Portable Veblen. I haven't read it yet, but I hear that it involves a sentient squirrel. Ah. You know, that's interesting because um, David Sedaris had a squirrel book a yeah. few years back. Yeah. yeah. The Rise of the Squirrel. Yes. So, so I, I would like to investigate an animal like mm. that, a sort of unsung, unheralded animal, not a dog, you know, because yeah. like a lot, we know a lot about, <laughs> we quote, know a lot about how dogs think because of books with, with dogs who think, but um, what about squirrels, you know, you what know, about moles? I want to really push you and think corn, corn. sentient corn, <laughs> and, and just that, like it's just an entire novel <laughs> about corn. Just one try, stock. I, yeah, I mean, you should be careful what you what you challenge me with because I may try it. Yeah, talk about constraint, right? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> I actually just read this thing about fungi that, that connects to the roots and it helps plants communicate. So if one's being attacked by a certain kind of aphid, then it somehow communicates with fungi in the ground and it the fungi carries like a message information to the next plant over and it will the other plant who's unaffected will start giving off 
chemicals that repel the thing that that first one is being attacked by. So I'm seeing a whole corn. You know what I'm seeing? A Pixar film. Yes. Called Fungi. Yes. What do you think? And there's a lot of people at the bottom of that slide, too. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. That's excellent. I love it. Well, Angie, since you're full of fungi, um, <laughs> what, what, what would you like to steal this week? Well, you know, I was really struck by your statement about the lack of perspective in an outline, that it's the wrong point of view. And um, I think really what I want to try on for my sort of next project is it, what if I outlined from a point of view? So I want to just try that out, see how it feels to do that um, rather than that high omniscient... That we tend to do. Yeah. I sort of did that. I, I was really stuck with the whole piece of my novel where my character comes to California and sort of investigates some things. And I and I was and I so I just interviewed her one morning. Mm. I sat down and I wrote questions and then she had to tell me and and it it just made it logical too. She was like, Well then I did this and I and, and I had been wanting to withhold her doing that because it seemed more exciting and of course she went right for the most the most <laughs> possible you know, anyway, so I think that's a great idea. Um, I will just say briefly that I'm actually literally going into books and stealing verbs because I'm mm. doing a line edit of my manuscript and so many people stand, stood, stand. I don't know. This is one of my, so I'm like, I'm going in and just leafing through books looking for better verbs. Yeah, I think that there's something in Scrivener that lets you see the most commonly used words. Mm-hmm. So you Scrivener, too? Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you a Scrivener writer? Scrivener. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it might... Or Scrivener, right? I know, just... Although it's thrilling to get the pieces all together at the end there, like having in a document. Yeah. Yeah. That is nice. But being able to just flip between your chapters like that... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I do, too. Speaking of Pixar, are you, are you, have you thought about screenplay writing at all? I've never tried it. Yeah, I've I've always wanted to, but mm-hmm. never tried it. Yeah. You any, guys great place, right? Angie more than, yeah. than me, but yeah. Any um any possibility of of the mysteries going to the big there's, screen? There's been some interest from a writing team in in LA, but they're not really. They're kind of a younger mm-hmm. guys who aren't in a position to pitch their own show yet. So mm-hmm. they pulled my agent before you sell it to someone else. Be sure to come back and let us know because we might, you know, we want to, I don't know. I mean, it's basically, no. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a show, though. Yeah. It's like an HBO thing or something. Yeah, it, they did a little treatment of it um, that that they shared with me. And it was interesting. You know, they'd broken down all the characters into uh, little, I don't know what you call them, paragraph descriptions of them. So and, they made a show Bible out of your book. Yes, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and suggested actors for each of the roles and that kind of thing. Wow. That, that was pretty thrilling to see. Although that was just based on the first novel. And with novels in a series like this, um, not all the characters carry over from one, mm. um, one book to the next. I've, I've sort of had to learn the rules about this as well. The publisher wants to make it so that um, a new reader to the series can drop in at any point and then read all the others out of sequence. So it's not a serial um, story in the way way that most scripted television is these days. It seems to be mostly serial. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the sitcoms are kind of serial. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but they don't want that to be true with, with uh, detective novels now. So, so I had to make sure that like Johnny's girlfriend from the first novel can't carry over to the second. You can't mention any, any details of the crime or about, or any of his romantic liaisons from the first book and the second book. Basically the only things that can carry over, the only characters who can carry over are his family because you know, your family goes with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because he does refer, I hadn't read the first book, but he refers to things in his past and even solving cases, but I guess they're not those cases. Yeah. Well, you don't, you don't know. Right. It, it, I don't know. It's not important to know. You, you just never want to give the reader the feeling that, um, that they've missed out on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a commercial, there, there's a, uh, a, a business reason for this, which is that the latest book is always in hardcover. So they want you to buy the hardcover and then go back and, you know, hoover up all the, the paperbacks, I guess. Mm-hmm. And ebooks. And ebooks, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, great. So people should go get Double Switch right now in hardback mm. and get hooked in. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Bye.